Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Well, I'm Matt Fradd, and I'm from Australia. I flew all the way here eight years ago to be with you today, and uh, I married an American woman, and uh, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, for the last several years, I have traveled the country and different parts of the world speaking about pornography. Um, it's a fun job. My mum's really proud. <laughs> I think when people are like, so what, what, did, what, no, no, mm. so what does your son do for a living? I think she says something like, he helps people. <laughs> How? Just helps them. Uh, when I travel, I travel quite a bit to speak and um, I'm usually asked the question by an unsuspecting passenger, that question, sure. what do you do for a living? And I feel sorry for them. They're strapped into a seat with no viable escape route. You know? And sometimes I'm just tired, so I try and, you know, brush it off. I just, I write about things, do some speaking. What on? Just stuff. What kind of stuff? Porn, okay? Are you happy? Now you've got that out of me, gin and tonic for this. What I do. And I get several reactions from folks. I had this one, well, a number of people just, you know, kind of freak out at that point and they go, oh, that's. Please don't speak to me. <laughs> I had one lady, she must have been nervous because this is what she said. She went, okay, I teach math. <laughs> So it's sort of similar. No, it's not. It's not similar. Oh, you're a fun bunch. <clears throat> uh, I've had the great joy and real, seriously, a privilege with working with not only those men and women who would say they've been hooked on porn, uh, but also those in the industry, you know, are good people who have been playboy producers and strippers and prostitutes and porn stars, you know. And um, the story they tell me about the industry is one that I think is very different to the one the industry would have us believe. So in today's talk, what I'd like to do is share with you 10 common myths that we often believe about pornography and show why there's good reason to think that they're false. Now the final myth is going to be, I can never be free of this. And in that part, it might be the most important part of the talk, I'm gonna suggest with you some things that are very practical. Hands up if you remember The Truman Show. All right, good. Came out about 14 years ago. It was actually the very first date I ever went on with this young girl. We went to The Truman Show and uh, I was 17. First date ever, terrified. You know, and we were sitting up the back. Uh, I used to dress all in black at the time. I think I had like a Megadeth shirt on, like a boss. And um, I remember as we were watching the Truman Show, I kept telling myself, put your arm around her, you idiot. But I was so scared. So I would make bets with myself, my, all right, when Truman crosses the road, you're gonna do it. Yeah! So close! Gah! All right, so The Truman Show, for those of you who don't know, is about a man who was born into a world that he thinks is the real world, but is actually a fake one. It's a gigantic television studio with tens of thousands of video cameras that document his every move and then televise them for us, the public. It's like a reality TV that goes for 24 hours a day and seven days a week. So everyone in his life are actors. His dad didn't really die in a boating accident. His wife didn't really love him, uh, and so forth. And so long as he thinks this is the real world, then he's happy just to go along with things. 
It's only when Truman begins to become suspicious that maybe this is an illusion, a fantasy world, that he's then incentivized to break free. And that's my hope with this talk today. Before we look at these 10 myths, I think it's important that we first address what the problem isn't with pornography. Now, I would hope, since most of you are good Christian people, you already know this, but it's good to say anyway. Some people seem to argue as follows. Uh, pornography is wrong. Pornography involves naked people having sex. Therefore, there's something wrong with either nudity or sex. And this, I hope you know, is mammothly fallacious, all right? That, that sex is good, that nudity is good, that breasts are good, that orgasms are good, okay? This is God's idea. So if you feel uncomfortable with it, take it up with him, right? <laughs> In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we have the very first commandment from God to humanity in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. And what does he say? Well, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And as Peter Kraft once quipped, I do not think he meant grow pineapples and invent calculators. <laughs> like, if that's what your Bible says, throw it away. RSV Catholic edition. All right, go to Genesis. So sex is a good thing. Sexual desire, please hear me, is good. You're a young man in here, a young woman here, old man, old woman. I hope you experience sexual desire. I mean, if you were to say to me, I've never actually experienced sexual desire. <laughs> you know, and you, you know, um, you know, maybe you'll say something like, I've prayed my rosary every day and now I'm, you know, don't ever actually. You know, you know, like, I know you know this, but there might be something profoundly wrong with you. Yeah, right? Don't see a priest, see a psychiatrist. <laughs> sexual, you know, Christianity is not about the annihilation of sexual desire, but about the orientation of it for the sake of love. Yeah, it's a good thing. Sexual desire says, this is my body given up for you. Lust says, this is your body taken by me. Mm, wasn't that deep? <laughs> You're welcome. Shall we, shall we proceed? What we're going to do is we're going to look at these 10 rather briefly. Much could be said about it. Much is being said about it. I'm writing some books on it, so there'll be further uh, elaboration on it in the future. But we'll touch upon these 10 and then we'll open it up for Q&A and have a conversation because I feel like I'm among friends tonight. Is that all right? I asked if I could have a whiskey. They said no. <laughs> Thought this was supposed to be a Catholic university. That's... <laughs> all right, number one, first myth. Let's just drive a stake through this myth. Only men struggle with porn. Please clap if you want people to shut up and stop saying that. All right. Please, please stop saying that. It's false and it's hurtful. Okay. In August of 2006, a survey reported 20% of all Christian women use porn. 60% of women who answered this survey, these Christian women, admitted to having significant struggles with lust and 40% admitted to being involved in sexual sin in the past year. So one, please stop saying that. Porn doesn't discriminate. And at the porn effect, we receive, it's, it's, it's like 60% of emails probably from men, uh, maybe 40 from, from women. It's almost neck and neck. In 2003, 34% of female readers of today's Christian woman's online newsletter admitted to intentionally accessing internet porn. So the first thing is stop saying that. The second thing is don't psychoanalyze women who do look at porn. Uh, saying to a woman uh, who looks at porn, did you have a, maybe a bad relationship with your dad, is as insulting as saying to someone with same-sex attraction, that's probably because you didn't have a strong father figure. Who are you to say something like that? There's many reasons to go into these sorts of things. Many reasons we find this sort of stuff attractive, okay? Number two, if people didn't have porn, they would end up sexually repressed and neurotic. To me, that's like saying, you know, if people weren't obese, they would be anorexic. 
We need people as fat as physically possible. <laughs> Just... Now, if someone said that to you, you would say, um, hello? Like, isn't there a third option? Health? You know? <laughs> and there is such a thing as sexual health, right? We call it chastity. Now, let's just all be honest. Chastity is a weird word, okay? Chastity! Especially when you say it like that. But, you know, when you hear the word chastity, you think of one of three things. Jason Everett, obviously. Number two, right? You think of an uncomfortable belt. You're like, chastity, oh, that's no. Or you might think abstinence, yeah? And as you very well know, I'm sure, there's a very big difference between chastity and abstinence. Absence is about what you're not doing. Chastity is about what you are. So if you came up to me after tonight's talk and said, Matt, I'm abstinent, I'd say, well, congratulations. Uh, but that doesn't tell me anything about you, really. I mean, not to be too frank about it, but it might just mean that the opportunity hasn't presented itself. I mean, maybe that's why you're abstinent. It doesn't tell me that you're a virtuous person, yeah? But chastity, on the other hand, is a virtue, like courage. Just as courage enables one to be brave in the face of fear, so chastity enables one to love in accord with his dignity, right? Chastity means that you are not controlled by your sexual desire, right? It's beautiful. It's liberating. Number three. <laughs> All right, maybe not porn. What about masturbation? Masturbation is good for you, isn't it? And you hear these sorts of things all the time. Um, I've heard people say everything from it uh, reduces the risk of prostate cancer to, um, you know, cleans up the skin. You know, just eat prunes and use Clearasol, for goodness sake. <laughs> but when somebody says masturbating is good for you, what they don't mean is the act of masturbation, that there's something in the act of it that is beneficial. You know, it's like, well, you get the heart rate up. Well, you could probably do that another way, you know? <laughs> when people say masturbation is good for you, they always, almost always, if not always, mean that ejaculation is good for you, if they're talking to men, yeah? But so what? I mean, that's hardly controversial, especially if you're a Christian and you recognize that orgasm and ejaculation is a good thing, it has good side effects. But just because something's a good thing doesn't mean that the ends justify the means. I've never heard somebody say, well, you know, um, uh, when you ejaculate, that's good. That's why I'm having an affair. Uh, that's why I'm renting a hooker, right? Not many people would say things like that because I think many people recognize that these things are immoral. And I would like to say that the same thing's true about masturbation. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about masturbation. Quote, the real evil of masturbation is that it takes an appetite which, in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and turns it back. Sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem, this is brilliant, this bit, is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover, no demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided, as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. Number four, pornography is adult entertainment. Now look, 200 years ago in Great Britain, if you said, I'm going to a gentleman's club, it was understood that you were going to an upper class establishment 
uh, to gossip with people of your class, play parlor games, drink whatever it is that English people drank 200 years ago. Right? But today, if you say, I'm going to a gentleman's club, it's understood that you're going to a low-lit bar uh, that smells like urinal cakes and hopelessness. You know, there's a big difference, and yet we call this gentleman's club. Adult bookstores. You see this, ad this defensive advertising. There's a reason that these adult bookstores cover up their windows and offer back entrances. Right? It's not because the clientele are misunderstood revolutionaries plotting the demise of a sexually repressed culture. It's far simpler than that, and this is it. It's because what they're doing is bloody wrong. And they know it's wrong, and they'd rather not have you knowing that they're there. I was speaking to a bloke here earlier today. I said, you know, when you go to the airport, there's a reason you've never seen someone buy a porno from the top shelf of an airport. Uh, thing. Thing that was descriptive. <laughs> the same thing with these adult bookstores. We cover up the windows, we offer back entrances. It seems to me that actions speak louder than words, even when those words are five foot high neon and constitute the phrase gentleman's club. Number five. Well, those in the sex industry, be that porn or prostitution, what have you, are just well-rounded nymphomaniacs. I mean, they like sex, you know, they're, they're just enjoying themselves. Let them go. What's the problem? Well, the problem, I think, is that for the most part, this is absolutely false. I mean, I've worked with several uh, women who have been in the sex industry, who were in the sex industry, and this is just never the case, that they just are you know, love this stuff. Listen to this quote from psychotherapist Dr. Mary Ann Layden, who herself is not a Christian. She says, once the porn pornography actress, actresses are in the industry, they have high rates of substance abuse, typically alcohol and cocaine, depression, borderline personality disorder. The experience I find most common among the performers is that they have to be drunk, high or disassociated in order to go to work. Their work environment is particularly toxic. The terrible work life of the pornography performer is often followed by an equally terrible home life. They have an increased risk of sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV, domestic violence, and have about 25% chance of making a marriage that lasts as long as three years. When I was living in Ireland, or as you say, Ireland, I was in Donegal, <laughs> And um, we ran this rosary group once a week. And we had this young lady come to the group. We'll call her June. And those of you who have read my book have read her story. Uh, June was a good girl, beautiful girl, but she was a hurt girl. She was a broken girl, you know? There was a lot of issues there. And once she left high school, she went to Great Britain where she became a stripper. And I got in touch with June over Facebook. And I just said, hey, I hope you're doing really well. Miss you. And she said, I know why you're writing. It's because you've heard I'm a stripper. And if you're here to judge me, then whatever. You know, I'm like, like seriously not, seriously not here to judge you. I'm just genuinely interested in you and I hope that you're well. And we began talking over Facebook. And I said, would you mind if I conducted a written interview with you so that people can know what it's like to do the sort of work you do? Now keep in mind, this isn't a young woman who left stripping, came to Jesus, and was in that sense biased. This was a girl who was going to do her next gig Saturday night. I said to her, what's it like, honestly, stripping in front of strangers who care nothing for you? This is what she wrote verbatim. It makes me feel sick. A lot of the time I try to imagine they're not there or something, but the biggest part of the job is making them feel special. Making them feel like they're unique and that you have a particular interest in them. Looking into their eyes is really important. I hate having to do that because I hate them all. I hate that it's these men who have brought this business into existence I always have thoughts like, I hate you so much. Please die. I want to castrate you. 
stop looking at me while I'm in front of them, smiling and staring into their eyes. I feel nothing but loathing. And I said, June, I'm going to go out on a limb here. You don't sound very happy. Uh, why are you doing this? And she said, well, we have, I have this debt I need to pay off and I can't ask my parents for the money because they'll be curious. I said, well, don't you have things you can sell? She said, I've sold it all. I said, I'm sure, well, don't you make enough money doing the stripping that you could pay the debt and stop? And she said, honestly, I've got to be drunk doing this stuff just to get through a night. Sometimes I leave with less money than I came with. I said, June, if my wife and I paid the debt, would you quit stripping? And she said, I'm not that kind of girl. I said, like, listen, you're willing to take your clothes off for money. All I'm saying is, I'll give you money. You put them back on, you know, <laughs> um, you know. And she said, uh, right, OK, fine, I'll do it. I said, yeah, and you can pay us back by coming over and having dinner with us sometime. We miss you. And she, she said, OK. And I said, look, June, I love you, but I don't trust you. And I need to know that you've quit. All right, I need evidence of that, and then we'll send the check. She said, OK. She emailed me and said she quit, gave me the number of her boss. So I called him up, and uh, I remember him saying, I can't say, because I asked her real name. He said, I can't say if she's quit, but I can tell you that a lady who went by the name of June, I'm like, all of a sudden we're being bloody moral, right? I'm like, fine, just she's quit, good. Hung up, and I send the check, and I sent some, you know, paraphernalia from Jason and Christina Everett, sent a miraculous medal, stuff like that. <laughs> And, um, you know, she quit. And a few weeks went by and she came and visited us in uh, Ireland. And she had dinner with us. And after dinner, I was sitting out the back with June and we were having a smoke. And uh, I thought to ask her, have you ever thought about going to confession? Because she was Catholic. But then I thought the last thing I want to do is preach to her. But then I thought, <laughs> I'm not schizophrenic. <laughs> but then I thought, <laughs> to the other thought that I thought I thought was that I said, but if I don't ask her to go to confession, who in her life will? Good point. Yes, you're welcome. Um, and so I just sort of mustered up the courage and I said, June, have you ever thought about going to confession? And she looked at me and she said, absolutely. Oh, that was a shock. She said, but I'm terrified. I said, oh, that's totally normal. <laughs> I said, look, I don't know, nor should I like to know, anybody who really enjoyed going to confession. <laughs> Good friend of mine, you may be aware of her, Judy McDonald, who uh, does some kind of comedy work. She always jokes about her first confession and how terrifying that was. And I remember the, the, the incident as well. You know, the, your teacher was desperately trying to convince you that this was a normal thing, right? Okay. What are we going to do is... Go over there into that. The closet? It's not a closet. It's a confessional. And you're going to tell the man you don't know all the bad stuff you've done. Are you freaking kidding me? Right, eh? Judy McDonald said she would get in line and she was so scared that she would get there, she'd forget her sins and just make them up. I kicked the cat. I don't have a cat. If I had a cat, I'm pretty sure I'd want to kick it. Which turns out is a sin to make up sense. So she says, you know, confession was an old day ordeal for me. But nevertheless, I said, look, it's completely natural that you would feel some hesitation. Nevertheless, it's a good thing. Uh, and despite how you may be feeling, you really have nothing to worry about. She said, okay. So we arranged for a good friend of ours, to a priest friend, to come over to the house the following week. And that Monday night, June arrived first and she was really scared, white, visibly uh, afraid. And so she came into the kitchen and I took off with the two ragamuffins, my kids. And my wife prayed for June and father arrived and we let him into the living room. And then June went in and she just sort of confessed this stuff. And it was probably no more than five minutes. And she came out skipping in my hallway. Not metaphoric, like actually skipping. 
please stop the skipping, would you? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Just beautiful, beautiful. Uh, listen, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you, no matter what you did this morning, Jesus Christ apparently thinks that you were worth the death of his son. You. I know, I don't get it either. And you don't have to believe that. You're perfectly fine. Continue to live as if you're scum, that God can't possibly enjoy you like you. You can continue to live like that if you will. But in doing that, you're not living in accord with reality. So just give up and just submit to reality. He really, really likes you. You know? Porn does not liberate women. Uh, listen to this. In 2007, researchers analyzed the top-selling pornographic DVDs. In this study, they viewed 304 sex scenes. In those scenes, this is what they found. 3,376 acts of verbal or physical aggression. That's an act of aggression every minute and a half, by the way. About 88% of scenes, 88% of scenes contained at least one act of physical aggression, such as slapping, gagging. You know this if you're looking at porn. Verbal aggression was present in about 48.7% of adult videos. So, uh, women being called things like bitch and slut and much, much worse. In 73% of instances, men were the aggressors. When women were the aggressors, they were, they were perpetrating their violence on almost always women. In 95% of the scenes, the person receiving the aggression reacted neutrally or as if they were enjoying it. Now keep in mind that this is from the top selling pornographic content. I'm not saying this is like fringe stuff. These, this stuff is how pornographers make their money. So to say, well, they're just well-rounded nymphomaniacs, liberates women, are you kidding me? But let's play devil's advocate for a moment. You might say, well, what about dear Bella Knox at Duke University who says she enjoys being punched in the face and choked, and apparently? Well, let's take her at her word, shall we? And let's assume she's had a perfect childhood, good father, good mother, she loves it. Does that make it okay? Does, does being cool with being degraded make being degraded any more cool? I don't think it does. Sometimes th this porn breeds this mentality. You'll hear people say, it's not like I'm raping anybody. Oh, well. <laughs> like when you die and face Christ, he's not gonna say, did you rape anyone? Yeah. No, well done my good and faithful servant. You know, it's, <laughs> He's going to ask you what you did do, yeah? Uh, right, okay. We're just skimming the surface of each of these and in the Q&A period, if you want to address any either further, we, we can. Number six, porn is only fantasy. It doesn't affect my life. Think of the, how many of you are taking logic? Oh dear Lord. <laughs> I could say just about anything and you'd be convinced. <laughs> All right, look, think about the argument behind this. It's essentially arguing that images coupled with messages do not have the power to influence human behavior. But if that's true, then please explain advertising to me. Suppose you had a friend who enjoyed watching racist videos. Let's suppose there's a site out there, I don't know if there is or not, maybe there is, in which black people are denigrated and humiliated on set. And your friend who's white just finds this funny. He enjoys it. And when you say, look, you shouldn't be bloody watching that, he says, it's not, it's just fantasy. Well, you would probably say at least two things. You would say, okay, one, no, it's not. This is going to affect the way you relate with other people. And two, even if it doesn't, you are wrong to find this um, entertaining. You're wrong to find it entertaining. Wouldn't you? 
I think the same thing is true with porn. A couple of years ago, there was a study published in the British Journal of Psychology. It was conducted by psychologists from two universities in Great Britain, Middlesex University and the University of Surrey. Here's what they did. They took quotations about women from lads mags, similar to Maxim magazine and that sort of junk, but even more sort of decrepit. Quotes about women from lads mags that under 18s can buy. Apparently the culture saying this is perfectly fine. They then took quotations from convicted rapists justifying their violence against women. They then took these quotations to the public and randomly interviewed people and presented the quotations while withholding the source. Here's some quotations which came from which. The reason it made the British Journal of Psychology is that people didn't know. At best, they were just guessing. Not only does it affect us emotionally, intellectually, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says it uh, immerses all who are into it into the illusion of a fantasy world, it also is affecting us physiologically. And if you've been paying attention to the, to the news of late, you'll probably would have stumbled across articles that discuss this sort of thing. Marianne Layden, again, said this. She works with those victims of sexual abuse, those who are addicted to sex, both men and women. She said this. I have also seen in my clinical experience that pornography damages the sexual performance of the viewers. Pornography viewers tend to have problems with premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction. Yay! She didn't write yay. Just <laughs> Having spent so much time in unnatural sexual experiences with paper, celluloid and cyberspace, they seem to find it difficult to have sex with a real human being. Pornography is raising their expectation and demand for types and amounts of sexual experience. And at the same time, it's reducing their ability to experience sex. There are many self-interested reasons to want to be porn free that have nothing to do with religion. Number seven. No one ever says this, but we all think it. Porn will make me happy. <laughs> like, no one's ever said that. Man, this coffee's not very good. I know what'll work, porn. <laughs> Look, listen to me, my people. If you're a young woman and you're hooked on porn, I love you, you're beautiful. If you're a young man, you're looking at porn, you're hooked on it, you're up to your eyeballs in it, you're looking at stuff that you think I'd throw up over if I saw. I love you, you're good, all right, look. People don't go to porn because they're awful people. Porn will make people awful, but that's not the reason people go to porn, generally. When people go to porn, they're seeking a legitimate good. They're not saying, I'm going to go have a bagel, catch up with Barry, go for a run, come home, objectify women for three hours. That, you know, like, we don't think like that. Rather, we're seeking something that we really believe will bless us, will help us. And St. Thomas Aquinas talks about this, that we don't seek sin for the sake of sin, except that we're seeking a legitimate good in the wrong way. So what are the reasons we go to porn? Well, one, it feels really good. Masturbation feels good. And if that scandalizes you, get over it. What the heck? All right. Uh, I once heard of an alcoholic who said the only time he was able to get a handle on his addiction and begin to overcome it was when he could start to admit, you know, I really like getting drunk, but it's killing me. Well, the same thing's true with porn. Look, you were born into a pornographic, pornographic culture. That wasn't your fault. Do you realize that? that wasn't, you didn't ask for that. You remember your first exposure to porn? Remember that? Chances are you weren't actively seeking that out. So that wasn't your fault either. The fact that you had a physiological reaction and wanted to see more, that's not your fault either. But the question we have to ask now is, since it's killing me, am I going to make excuses or decide to change? We'll talk about that in a moment. 
But what is it we seek when we turn to porn? Here are a few things. Excitement, joy, intimacy, freedom. But what always happens is you go looking for excitement and you become bored. Pornography is a drearily predictable means of becoming bored and boring. It doesn't work. Jason Everett put it this way, you know, we go looking for excitement, but we become bored with some of the most beautiful bodies on the planet. And we click from scene to scene, from fantasy to fantasy, and then we slide into marriage and we think that somehow our husband or our wife is going to keep our attention. We go because we want joy. I was joking with my wife the other night, sometimes it's like 10 and 10 at night and I'm going through the cupboards looking for happiness. I know it's around here somewhere. It's like if I could just find the pirate booty, then I would be able to. We want joy, we want joy. But as St. Jose Maria Escriva has said, and I'm paraphrasing, but after a sexual fall, what loneliness. So we go for joy and we end up sad. We go for intimacy, maybe we're lonely. And pornography gives us a warped sense of intimacy. But what ends up happening is we become even more isolated. Maybe we go because we just want to be free. I just want to be free to do whatever I want. But we end up enslaved and addicted. We go for adult entertainment and we become increasingly juvenile. Number eight, porn isn't addictive. It's nice that you're laughing. Now the argument usually goes as follows. You can't inject porn, right? We're agreed on that. You can't inhale it unless you set a magazine on fire. Would recommend that. <laughs> Inhaled it, don't do that. Right. It's not a drug. Porn isn't a drug, therefore it can't be an addiction, therefore stop calling it an addiction. You're trivialising real addictions, like methamphetamines and alcohol. While it's true that pornography isn't a drug, it's also true that pornography elicits powerful neurotransmitters, aka brain drugs, in the brain, which the brain can and does become addicted to. So the old notion that it can't be a drug because I'm not inhaling it is hopelessly out of date with what we now know through modern neuroscience. Dr. Kevin Skinner is a neurosurgeon in San Antonio and on my website, theporneffect.com, I interviewed him. And he says, let's talk about the neurotransmitter dopamine, which in addition to its role in body movement, if you have a friend who has Parkinson's disease, it's very likely they're being given a derivative of dopamine. It plays a key role in the pleasure reward centers of the brain. It incentivizes us to, pro to produce behaviors that are conducive to our survival. Have sex, exercise, even win a game, eat a hamburger. But Dr. Hilton says that when the pathways are used compulsively, a downgrading occurs, and this neurotransmitter begins to shrink, and the reward cells in what's called the nucleus accumbens are now starved for dopamine. It's as if we've now reset the pleasure thermostat in our brain. And we now need harder forms of that drug. And in this case with pornography, more shocking forms of that drug just to feel even. Just to feel normal, like someone who isn't addicted to porn. And as a feedback of sorts, the frontal lobe, which is critical in making good decisions, right, judgments, can actually begin to shrink as well. You may have been aware or you may have seen something about the study that came out of Germany earlier this year that suggested that porn addicts have smaller brains. Look it up. In their book, uh, The Porn Trap, Larry and Wendy Maltz, who are themselves not Christians either, they say it can take around about 18 months for the dopamine, dopamogenic system to restore itself. So healing does happen. The brain can heal itself, but it needs time in detox. Number nine, you're doing good. 
comic relief, you're welcome. Here we go. <laughs> Number nine, I can overcome this on my own. I have never met anyone who's found a significant degree of healing, be they men or man or woman, uh, who did this on their own. No recovering porn addict is an island, okay? We need each other and we need to be accountable. Now one of the ways we're going to be talking about accountability over the next couple of days is through Covenant Eyes. And if you don't know, Covenant Eyes invented accountability software in the year 2000. They also have a fantastic filter, which if you're looking at porn on a regular basis would be a good idea to get also. But what's beautiful about accountability software is it changes the mentality. Once you download accountability software, it asks you to enter the email address or addresses of accountability partners. Then it will send them a detailed report once a week, once every two weeks of where you've been. You can set the rating and it's rated in much the same way that video games are rated. So G, P, G, M, M, A, right? Changes the mentality. No longer do we think, how do I get around the filter? We now think, well, I can look at porn, right? But then I have to have a very awkward conversation with grandma or whoever <laughs> you choose to be your accountability partner, uh-huh. And so when you download accountability software, make sure that your accountability partner, A, knows. <laughs> and B, um, that he or she is not currently looking at pornography. It's really fantastic. Accountability means allowing another person to remind you of who you are and who you want to be. Because I think most of us, and when I give talks on colleges that are secular or high schools, right? Most of us just don't want to be the sorts of people that look at porn. I mean, I've never met a young guy who says something like, you know, when I grow up, I want to be the kind of man who has to creep away from his wife late at night while she's sleeping and the kids to get a fix from my laptop. Like, the, no, we don't want these things. I've never met a girl who says, you know, when I'm a mother, I, I, need, I need to get really good at clearing my history because I don't want my kids to find the, the porn that I'm looking at. No, she would just say, I just don't want to be, simply don't want to be this kind of woman. So having somebody in your life who can remind you of that is a really, really good idea. Uh, how frankly can I put it without being offensive? <laughs> let, me put, let me say a few things. I have people call me People that you would have heard of who like, who are kind of Catholic leaders in America or Catholic speakers. And I had one bloke call me recently and he said, Matt, I'm an idiot. And I said, I know, but why? <laughs> it wasn't Stefanik. I said, um, <laughs> why? And he said, I tell everybody to get covenant eyes and I never got it for my kid and I just found out he's been looking at porn for last year. And I said to him, you are an idiot. You, yes, that was an idiotic thing to do. If you're serious about recovery from pornography, Covenant Eyes isn't an option. It, it's something you will do. Does it require sacrifice? Yes. But if you're serious, you'll do it. If you're not serious, don't do it. If you want to become addicted to porn, definitely don't get Covenant Eyes because it will put a severe roadblock in your path to enslavement. Get it. Now, the folks at Covenant Eyes are very good people. I was chatting with the bloke who invented it, and I said, what about those who can't afford it? I mean, I know it's eight bucks a month, come on. But I said, what about the people that can't afford it? He said, if they can't afford it, we'll give it to them. I said, that doesn't sound like a very healthy marketing strategy. <laughs> he said, we're in it to save souls, not to make money. So if you legitimately can't afford it, Covenant Eyes has a hardship program. They'll give it to you for three months at a time. They'll email you, check in with you. If you can begin to support it, then good. No questions asked. We really don't have an excuse. Over the next couple of days, you'll be learning much more about it. All right, are you ready for probably the most important part of the talk, now that you're tired? <laughs> Do you want me to tell you a joke? should have thought of one. <laughs> Do you want, all right, I'm gonna tell you the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me on this campus. 
This is not so much funny as it is just, you know, me trying to be real with you. I have never said this in a talk before and I will probably never do it again, so it's a good thing they're filming it. <laughs> All right, check it out. So I do a lot of youth conferences and in 2012, Scott Hahn invited me to come and speak at the Apologetics Conference here. So after two youth conferences, you know, a little different vibe. I show up into this room and all of my heroes are there. You know, Janet Smith, um, Ralph uh, Martin, and Patrick Madrid, Scott Hahn, Kimberly Hahn, Ke uh, other people that obviously weren't that important to me. <laughs> now they're all standing in this room with suits. I walk in with bloody ripped jeans and a superhero t-shirt. <laughs> and I felt like, I may as I would have rather been naked. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry. I felt so stupid. And they were all very kind about it. Oh, yeah, I got the youth thing going on. <laughs> got the stuffy academic thing going on, dude. <laughs> all right, so this is what happens. I'm feeling really bad. And I sit down, you know. Well, food hadn't come out yet. I'm sitting down and someone brings in this Buffet line, brings in the buffet food. <laughs> and I um, went up first, because I'm considerate. <laughs> and I began to scoop stuff onto my plate, you know, like a champion. And I'm getting the rice and I put it on the plate and I lay the big spoon down. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I put it down and it kind of flipped a little bit because of the weight. And it dropped some rice on the ground. And I've got a decision to make. Scott Hahn is waiting for his rice. All right, what do I do? Kimberly's right behind me. I'm like, okay, here's, here's your options, Matt. This is happening in like milliseconds. <laughs> Get down and clean it up. And like, I'm thinking, well, is it worth that kind of thing? Oh, excuse me, everybody, let's just stop. Let me get down and clean, you know? And then I'm thinking, well, it's not that big of a mess. I'll just leave it. So I went through the line, sat down. As I went to eat before praying, I looked over and saw Kimberly on her hands and knees picking up my crap! That woman is a saint. Me not so much. Now at this point I have another decision to make. Think if you were in my shoes. Let's face it, Birkenstocks. All right, now what would have you done? I'm like, I have two options. I get up and make a big deal about it, because it wasn't that much, you know, so you go, oh, I'm so sorry, oh, excuse me, do you want me to, can I help, I'm sorry? <laughs> so whatever, at the time, like, not doing that. The second option was just, well, just let it go. I mean, she's doing that, don't make a big deal about it. So that's the decision I made. I still don't know if it was the right one. <laughs> that's it. To this day, I'm terrified to ask Scott for an endorsement. <laughs> Dresses like a hobo, throws food around. <laughs> All right, number 10. I can never be free of this. Oh, I can never be free of this. I stumbled across porn at the age of eight. I was playing out the back of a relative's house. My mum kicked us out of the house, my brother and I. She would do that from time to time when she got fed up with us. She would literally lock us outside. Go on, play, go on. At the time, I'm like, this is child abuse. <laughs> now I have four children, this is survival. <laughs> so we would run around the back of the house and we would play something we called Dirt Ronnie Wars. Now a Dirt Ronnie is, we had this red dirt in Australia that was talcum powder fine. If you clump it together, it makes like a snowball. Same mechanics are at play. The harder you pack it, the harder it hits and hopefully he bleeds. And so we would run around and we would do this game and at one particular point, I was running away from my brother and I ran into the shed. And there was a wooden trunk in the corner and I opened it up and I rummaged around and there it was. A glossy centerfold of a completely naked woman looking at me. Hello. <laughs> You're friendly. I had two feelings. One awe or wonder something, and also something like shame. Wonder because as Jason Everett has said, 
Um, well, at least from my point of view, there may be nothing, is nothing on the earth as beautiful as the female body. Sorry. No, I'm not. <laughs> People don't usually get addicted to looking at pictures of flamingos. <laughs> right? No one gets addicted. I mean, we may have watched the double rainbow thing a few times. <laughs> But no one is confessing it. Like, no one's like, it's becoming a problem! <laughs> what does this mean? It's so beautiful, I can't help myself. Yeah. So something like wonder and something like shame, I knew that I shouldn't be looking at it. Now, as technology advanced, so too did my use of porn. At the age of 13, not only did I have a relative who hid porn in his shed, a dad, who's a good man, by the way, but when he found my stash of porn, he pretty much congratulated me for it. That was surprising. Uh, I had a grade eight teacher at a Catholic camp tell me masturbation was fine and we should go for it like we needed permission. I'm like, all right. Um, if that's not enough, I had a, my best friend's mum, 13 years old. She would drive us out to movie stores and rent us pornographic films at the age of 13, right? Classy. Now, um, we would go back to his house, I'd go to at his room with my friend. She'd go to her room, we'd watch them. My parents didn't know anything about it and I was fine with this arrangement. But as technology advanced, so too did my addiction. I remember being in a strip club at the, probably the age of 16. I got in there somehow. And I wasn't Christian at the time. But I remember having this thought you know, I was on the third beer. You know, after the third beer, we all become philosophers, that was. I'm very pensive in the strip club. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, if, my, if I saw my dad in here, like if he walked in with some mates or if I saw him in the corner, I would lose all respect for him. How is it okay I'm here? Ah, forget about it, brush it away, brush it away. Um, I came to Christ at the age of 17 and began realizing that porn was stupid and I should try and be free of it. And it was really difficult, <coughs> really difficult. Uh, you know what this is like, you know, you fall to porn and you get really passionate. You're like, I'm never gonna do that again. You know that thing? <laughs> and then you do it again and you feel hopeless. And you go to confession and sometimes you priest hop because you're embarrassed, you know. And sometimes they give you bad advice. Sometimes you get only spiritual advice. Yeah, pray Hail Mary. All right, I'll give that a shot. And it can feel rather disheartening, hopeless. I know exactly how that feels. I know how sick and tired I was of being sick and tired. I carried it into my marriage for a little bit. And then by God's grace, over time, I began to find some freedom from it. You know, I haven't done it in a long time now. Doesn't mean I can't do it tonight or tomorrow. Let's address something before we talk about this way in which we can be free of porn. What does it mean to be free of porn? I think if we view freedom from pornography as a destination, then we're going to remain perpetually frustrated. If we think to ourselves, after I pray this many rosaries every day, then I'll be free. There's a problem when we, our prayer life becomes all about not looking at porn. It perverts our relationship with God. Our, our reason for praying should be union with God. But you'll find people, and you've said it too, I didn't pray my rosary Wednesday and I looked at porn and I know it's because I didn't pray my rosary. As if we're saying, I didn't pray my rosary, therefore God made me, or if he didn't make me, he allowed me to look at porn. We put all the responsibility on God and none on us. But saying I need to pray so I don't look at porn is sort of analogous to saying I need to tell my wife I love her every day so I don't commit adultery. This, these aren't why we do these things. Freedom is one day at a time. Sometimes it's one hour at a time. Maybe you're in here today and you're like, dude, I totally looked at porn right before coming here. <laughs> I'm sorry if that happened, but one hour at a time, man every moment choosing to be the kind of people we want to be, the kinds of people God wants us to be. It's a bloody hard struggle sometimes, but it's really worth it. Freedom is a daily choice. All right, get ready. In his book, Treating Pornography Addiction, Dr. Kevin Skinner lays out what he calls an activation sequence. He also calls it 
this is a little more funny, I guess, the pornography highway. I think, I think I used to live there in Houston. Um, and what he says is this, when somebody falls to pornography, one of two things happen. One, they look at porn, but there was something before that, right? The idea came into their head about porn and then they looked at it, right? Two things. But he says in this activation sequence, there are at least five stages in between these things. And if what we'll do is look at each stage and ask, how does that apply to me? And we're brutally honest about it, even though it makes us embarrassed. We can then write a deactivation sequence. Because if you go to my website, theporneffect.com, I, I lay out a lot of, you know, uh, advice for the big picture. Prayer and fasting, accountability. You need to get informed. Uh, we need to go to counseling if we need counseling. We need to be patient, right? This advice is for when temptation strikes. Here are the seven things. If you're taking notes, write this down. The first thing is a stimulus or trigger. Stimulus or trigger. Number two, emotional response. Number three, the first thought. I'll be saying these again. No one go crazy if you're not. Number four, chemical release. Number five, body language. Number six, the second thought. He calls it the battle. Number seven, the behavior. We're going to go through each of them. Number one, the trigger. What is it that gets us thinking about porn? What's it, what is it that gets the motor going? Now, for, for some things, it could be rather obvious things, like the Victoria's Secret catalogue. I'm not sure what the secret is, by the way. It seems pretty obvious to me, but never mind, right? It might be seeing a softcore sex scene on television. That might be the trigger. That might be the thing that gets you thinking and gets you down this pornography highway towards porn. But it can be other things that we haven't thought of. Maybe being rejected by a girl or by a boy. Uh, maybe feeling inferior around other men or women. Maybe feeling stressed out. For some people, they are triggered by non-sexual objects. This is, this is how fetishes arise. And usually, these are brought about because when someone was having a sexual experience, there were this particular thing, like a down jacket. I met a guy who was triggered by down jackets. And that's because he experienced sexual abuse in his past and there was a down jacket present in the room. So we need to be really honest with ourselves. What is it that gets me thinking? Here's a fun trigger that no one's articulated. It might be something like this. You might be on Facebook and that half a centimeter of that girl's head, like comments or that guy's head, and you just click on it and you start going through their pictures like a stalker. <laughs> and um, not funny. Um, you know, and you might be thinking this is harmless and maybe it is harmless, but maybe it's a trigger. And so when you encounter that, I find the best thing to say is this is a trigger to say it out loud, because what it does is it activates that thinking part of our brain. Number two, there's the emotional response. We think we, we have this emotion of excitement or curiosity that is coupled with the third step, which is the first thought. We think something like, what is it? You tell me. No, not out loud. Think about it. I could look at porn right now. I wonder what would happen if I just type this girl's name in and click Google Images. What do you think when you have this emotional response to the stimulus? You have to tell me yours. No, no you don't. You have to tell you yours. Because that's how you can deactivate it. Number four is the chemical release. Your body begins to prepare for climax. And if you're using porn, which most of us do, as an escape behavior, that is, you're bored, you're stressed, you're lonely, you're angry, you're tired, and you turn to it just to sort of escape the mundane, then your body knows just what to do when you're feeling like this, and it begins to prepare. And those chemicals, like we referenced earlier, begin to be released. Now, at this point, number five, we have body language, obviously, because the chemicals are dumped into the system, and so you might get an erection, you might have tingling in the groin, your eyes might dilate. I had someone tell me that for him, he had just this intense shaking, like shivering, as if it were cold, but he wasn't cold. Sweaty palms. All right. This is all indicative of the chemical release. Here we go. Number six, the second thought. Listen, you won't look at porn unless you authorize yourself to do it. 
We all have these ways of authorizing ourselves to look at porn or masturbate or whatever sexual sin it is. But the reason he calls this the battle is because we have competing thoughts. On the plus side, you know, or let's say against the porn, we think things like, I can't look at porn. I've looked at it a hundred times in the past. It's never made me happy. Stupid. I'm not going to do it. Or you'll think my three-year-old's in the same room as me. This is disgusting. I can't do this. Or you think God wouldn't want me to do this. So what are those thoughts for you? Right, that yell against it. Then you have pro-thoughts. One more time won't hurt. I've done this a million times. I'm not a sexually decrepit rapist yet. One more time's probably not going to do it. Or you'll have something like this. I am past the point of return right now. I know I'm going to fall, so I'm just going to masturbate. Maybe just some softcore porn stuff. I won't get too deep into it. And I'll just masturbate and, and, and I'll orgasm and I'll feel better. And then I'm going to go repent and just try again. Get it over and done with. What are the ways you authorize your pornography use? Number seven is the behavior. So whatever thought wins, the behavior ensues. And Dr. Skinner says at this point, once the chemicals have been dumped into the system, almost always the person will fall to pornography. So you can ask yourself the question, where, if this is a pornography highway, when would be the time to turn around? Well, maybe the trigger, but certainly before the chemical release. All right. Let me close on a word of hope, all right? The, wo <laughs> the wounds you have received didn't come overnight, all right? Maybe you had something traumatic happen to you, but it was an accumulating effect, right? This, like freedom from this stuff is not going to come overnight either. See, what happens is we turn to porn because we want a quick fix, right? And then when we're hooked on porn, we want a quick fix. We want a pornified solution to our pornography problem. What's the prayer? What prayer do I have to pray? What's the thing? What's the medal I have to wear? Stop it. It's a daily choice. It's a daily battle. But here's something kind of cool. This is a great opportunity to grow in holiness. Here's why. Struggling with porn is a good thing. We often think that struggle is synonymous with give in to. Someone says to us, I've been struggling with porn, and we think they mean, I've been looking at it. And that is what they mean. <laughs> but that's not what struggle means, right? Struggle means to violently resist. And if we violently resist against porn, we're going to grow in virtue. So with that definition in play, I hope you won't be offended if I say to you, if you're tempted to look at porn, I hope you're struggling with it. The alternative is just give in. And as we violently resist to be better people, to break free of this stuff, it's not as if the virtue of chastity raises, rises while the rest of the virtues lay dormant. If you imagine, this is a bar graph, by the way. <laughs> it's like he's, he's caressing a, I don't know, that is, right? It's like all these, these virtues begin to raise. I mean, think about it. What is required of the woman who struggles against porn? Patience, perseverance, self-mastery, moral courage. She is becoming a more interesting person. Because people who are virtuous are more interesting. The saints are more interesting than sinners. Right? And so to grow in virtue is to grow in sanctity. Therefore, you and I have a gift that Padre Pio didn't. That Therese of Lisieux didn't. Did sexual temptation always exist? Yes but not in this immediate, ubiquitous, anonymous sense as it does today. We have an opportunity. We show people we love them by preferring things to, preferring them to things. What a beautiful honor we have to be able to prefer Christ to this sin. You know, I remember when I was going to confession one time, um, for the umpteenth million time to confess porn and masturbation, I'm standing there in line. I'm thinking, God's mercy is evaporating on me. It's like he's like going to be the soup Nazi from uh, Seinfeld. <laughs> no more mercy for you. You know? 
Go home and look that up, yeah. You know, we stand there and we say to ourselves, would God forgive the biggest sinner? Yes. But what about me? We think to ourselves, who come back week after week with this stuff. And we know in our heads that that can't be true, but in our hearts we fear that it will. But as I was waiting there, I remember maybe the Holy Spirit brought it to mind, that scene from Matthew's Gospel where Peter approaches Christ and says, How many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, No, 70 times seven. By which he didn't mean 290. What is it? 490. 490. I said 290. You're welcome. (laughs) Right, he didn't mean 490, right? And then after that, no mercy for you. Right, he meant perfection. He meant consistency. If Christ is going to command us to act in that way, then that way will not be inconsistent with the nature of God who is infinite in all of his attributes. The same God who had mercy on Moses, the murderer, Rahab, the prostitute, David, the adulterer, Paul, the Christian murderer, will have mercy on us also. I'm reminded of the words of Saint Saint Margaret Mary Alacock's spiritual director. What's his name? Saint Claude de la Colomier. Or in Australian, Saint Claude de la Colomini. <laughs> this is what he says. All right, I'm paraphrasing, but it's so beautiful. And if you're just like caught up in porn and sin and crap and no one knows about it, you're totally ashamed and all that. Just hear these words. He says, I glorify you, Lord, in making known how good you are towards sinners. And that your mercy prevails over all malice. That no matter how many times or how shamefully or even criminally we fall, a sinner need not be driven to despair of your pardon. It is in vain that your enemy and mine should set new traps for me daily because he will make me lose everything else before the hope I have in your mercy. We think of Christ to Faustina in the Divine Mercy Diary. The greater the sinner, the greater right he has to my mercy. Or what about the St. Catherine of Siena in the dialogue? He says, my, my mercy is greater than all of the sins and creatures can commit, and therefore it greatly displeases me when they think their sin the greater. Finally, what about Therese of Lisieux? on her deathbed. They said, well, it's no wonder you're confident. We don't think you've ever committed a mortal sin in your life. (laughs) And she says, it's not because of my lack of mortal sin that I have confidence. Even if I had committed the most abominable and shameful sins imaginable, I would still be this confident. Why? Because I've seen the way he spoke to Magdalene. I've heard his words to the woman at the well. No, nothing can frighten me. (laughs) She says, I know that all of that sin, I would take it broken and bruised, and it would be like a drop of water flicked into the raging furnace of his mercy. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.